Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper by Jehan Suleiman and Russell Dale entitled The Recognition and Treatment of Autoimmune Epilepsy in Children, which is being published in the May 2015 issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Dr. Jehan Suleiman, who's Assistant Professor in Pediatric Neurology at the United Arab Emirates University in Alain, who is one of the authors, and Dr. Ming Lim, who is paediatric neurologist at the Evelina London Children's Hospital, who's co-authored a commentary on the article with Dr. Wright. Uh, please can we start with you, Jihan, to outline the paper and the background. So this paper aims to provide a review of an emerging and growing topic in the field of paediatric neurology and epilepsy, that is immune-mediated or autoimmune seizures and epilepsy. There are, in fact, limited studies in this area in children. I would start by saying that the link between immune system and seizures has been recognized long time ago. Inflammation and immune activation is observed in many neurological conditions, including those where seizures are a prominent feature. It is often hard to know in many of these conditions whether the activation of the immune system is primary or secondary. In many cases, the process involves uh, mostly the innate arm of the immune system. There is extensive literature discussing epilepsy and inflammation that the reader might be interested to refer to. I uh, mentioned the paper by Vizani uh, et al. in Nature Reviews in Neurology, 2011. However, in the recent years, the use of the term autoimmune epilepsy has been adopted terminology and definitions are still evolving, but currently this term is used mostly to indicate that the specific or adaptive immune system has a direct role in the pathogenesis of seizures and epilepsy. This has followed the recent discovery of autoantibodies against a number of neuronal channels, proteins, and receptors, such as the N-methyl-D-aspartate, the NMDA receptor, voltage-gated potassium channel complex and its related proteins, gamma aminobutyric acid receptors, type A and B, and many others. These neuronal antibodies were found initially in patients with encephalitis, where seizures are usually present, but patients also have other features, such as encephalopathy, movement disorders, cognitive and behavioral abnormalities. Autoimmune encephalitis is now well-described and may take a few forms clinically as well as radiologically, including focal encephalitis such as limbic encephalitis and diffuse such as the classic form of NMDA receptor encephalitis. However, overlap between these two types are also described. Patients with autoimmune encephalitis uh, are thought to benefit from immunotherapy, and this might need to be aggressive in some cases, such as some patients with NMDA receptor encephalitis, However, in some patients, spontaneous resolution is also possible. When it comes to autoimmune seizures in the absence of encephalitis, things are less clear. Many adults reports describe the presence of neuronal antibodies in about 11 to 16% of patients with epilepsy, including those with new onset as well as established epilepsy. We previously studied children with new-onset seizures and found neuronal antibodies in about 10% of the cohorts studied. 
Although neuronal antibodies help define and recognize autoimmune encephalitis and epilepsy, it is important to note that autoimmune etiology could still be present and may need to be considered even in the absence of neuronal antibodies. In fact, the list of potential antigens continues to grow and it is likely that patients who test negative for neuronal antibodies that we know now might have antibodies against yet-to-be-recognized antigens. It's also important to mention that these antibodies might not be easily accessible for testing in all places, although commercial kits are now available. The pathogenic role of these antibodies is further discussed in this paper. This paper highlights the importance of recognition of an autoimmune subgroup in children with epilepsy. As we know, epilepsy is common, and although causes such as structural, metabolic, or genetic are identified in many patients, the cause remains unknown in many others despite extensive investigations. In addition, treatment of epilepsy is largely symptomatic using different types of anti-epileptic drugs. However, about a third of patients with epilepsy are resistant to anti-epileptics. When we talk about autoimmune epilepsy, we hope that we are considering a cause that is present in a subgroup of patients with epilepsy, particularly those with unknown cause found. And on the other hand, we also hope that a cure is possible for these children using immunotherapy. We also fear that missing this as a potential cause might lead to delay in treatment and worse outcome including outgoing resistant epilepsy as well as cognitive and behavioral impairment. So from, from my perspective, I think this is a very important paper that sets the early efforts to come up with a definition for autoimmune epilepsy. I think it's a very important set of conditions because, as you all will know, about 20% of children with encephalopathy will have an immune-mediated etiology, of which maybe about 10 to 15% will have an autoimmune etiology. And this has recently been reported by Professor Dale's group in Australia and also been reported in the UK series of encephalitis, although it was hugely an adult and pediatric series. In children with epilepsy, as Professor Suleiman had mentioned in some of the work she had previously published, we know that up to 10% of children with form of focal epilepsy will have antibodies identified. And I think that brings us to the very interesting um, issue as to whether something is etiological, i.e. cause of the epilepsy or something that is driving the epilepsy. And, uh, and there are some clinical relevance in terms of therapy or if, in terms of immunotherapy. So the analogy to, to that would be in a viral infection where there's still active viral application which requires active uh, treatment or whether this is uh, a sequelae, i.e. this is an end result. And, and that's one, I think, aspect of the paper that is important and we're grateful that we could discuss that. And the other as well, of course, is now that we have a, a range of you know, antibodies and a range of potential treatments, how do we go by setting up a algorithm to test. And I think Dr. Suleiman had nicely highlighted some of the aspects that would make you consider an autoimmune etiology in, in her paper and in terms of what the clinical features are, what the investigative features are, and more importantly, uh, what would be your threshold to treat uh, this condition? Can I just say 
say one a little mm. comment about mm. what you've mentioned before about 10% of the children with sure. epilepsy bodies. In fact, what we did was testing a cohort of patients with uh, seizures, including focal and non-focal, and that mm-hmm. was the 10%. Actually, you come to specifically look at those with focal seizures, we had a higher percentage of antibodies in that particular group, so it was 23% if you just look at the patients who had focal epilepsy, which led us to conclude that maybe autoimmune epilepsy or neuronal antibodies are more common in that particular group, focal epilepsy, especially those with unknown cause. And this is often a group of patients which, if the seizures are resistant to treatment, as you know, they undergo a lot of investigation and go through even the process of potentially be surgical candidates for epilepsy surgery. Back to your question about, you know, how to identify these patients and which patients should we consider to have autoimmune cause for their epilepsy. As I say, I'm trying to really highlight that autoimmune epilepsy does not necessarily equal positive neuronal antibodies. So we're putting the positive neuronal antibodies as a feature that is supportive of an autoimmune epilepsy, but patients with negative antibodies could still have autoimmune epilepsy. So we're trying to get clinical guidelines, clinical uh, data, as well as investigative data. So the clinical ones, we think new onset, especially seizure type being focal, severe state seizures like status or seizures in clusters that are potentially resistant to conventional anti-epileptic treatment. This is the time where you want to consider an autoimmune cause. Of course, the presence of other features might be there, which might lead you to think, is this an autoimmune encephalitis? But we also know that encephalopathy is part of ongoing seizures, usually accompanied by encephalopathy, which is part of the epileptic encephalopathy process. So the presence of, for example, other features, such as the person has another autoimmune disease or autoantibody-mediated disorder, puts them at higher risk of developing another one. When it comes to investigations, the presence of inflammation on CSF analysis, of course, we always consider infection in this setting, but in the absence of infection or even in the presence of infection, as, for example, we know that mycoplasma can be present and, in fact, trigger some of the autoimmune processes. In the absence of resolution of the symptoms, then one might consider autoimmune etiology Imaging features of, for example, mesotemporal high signal or high signal in other places can be associated with an autoimmune etiology. However, I know that we also, as um, pediatric neurologists, when we see severe seizures, we also know that you know cerebral edema might be associated and secondary to the seizure activity itself. So it's really an, not an easy really job to identify these patients and just directly go for immune therapy but it is something that we need to consider in these patients. True. I totally agree. And the point you're making as well is that this is an evolving field. And as we start to understand the natural history of conditions more and also the more widespread availability of testing, then we will also appreciate the relevance of some of these testing, which, as you know, it's been riddled with uh, difficulties in terms of interpreting false positive and the clinical relevance of some of these antibody testing. Although, as you point out as well, we shouldn't dwell too much on it because the antibody testing only comprises of a very small component of the the positive patients. 
My other thought about this is the the extent of immunotherapy because, you know, the the biggest question a clinician faces is when do we start but also when do we stop? It's very clear from the work that one of my colleagues, um, of which I was involved with, Dr. Hackerhan, had done, is that if you were to identify an antibody in an autoimmune cephalitis, one was more likely to push harder with immunotherapy. And if one did not identify it, one was less likely. I'm not sure that identifying that now has changed people's practices, but I wondered what your thoughts were on that. I want to say, in addition to what is mentioned in this paper about how to recognize this condition, I just would like to draw the reader attention to our a paper that we previously proposed clinical guidelines to classify children with suspected autoimmune epilepsy. And this is really based on the likelihood of having an autoimmune etiology. Uh, if people think highly of this being an autoimmune etiology, then they're more likely to push on with the treatment. And this really is based on the features I've mentioned before, as well as some other features, like even uh, paradoxically the response to immunotherapy. So if, for example, one ended up using immunotherapy for this patient, maybe out of desperation or because the condition was severe enough without uh, having confirmation yet, then the response to immunotherapy might also be a supportive feature. Of course, we should also remember that some of the severe childhood epilepsies do respond to steroids and other immunotherapies such as West syndrome. So we're not saying that is really an immune-mediated condition. We just have to take it on a case-by-case basis, mm. I guess. But when it comes to choosing the uh, time to treat and the regimen to use, as I said before, things are probably more clear in children with seizures in association with autoimmune encephalitis because this has been described for longer and we've learned a lot from the adult as well experience. And, for example, once you have a, a child with a characteristic phenotype for NMDA receptor encephalitis and you send the antibodies and you often start preliminary treatment waiting the results. And once it's confirmed, then you're more likely, as you said, to push for treatment, including maintenance treatment. So usually the first-line treatment used or proposed in this paper is intravenous steroids as well as adjunctive immunoglobulins. If you're using maintenance treatment, you might use low-dose prednisolone, then taper as well as maybe monthly or so on intravenous immunoglobulins. Some, in some conditions, even steroid-sparing agents like mycophenolate might be used. But when things are less confirmed and less clear, again, one might give the first line because relatively the risks and side effects are not too much. But when we're talking about, for example, second-line agents like cyclophosphamide or rituximab, then one have to have a more solid ground or really a severe case that justify the use of these more toxic drugs in, in a child with epilepsy. Sure. It sounds like we're really agreed that treatment should be initiated before we even identify the antibodies provided the clinical picture fits and treatment should be continued and escalated provided the patient remains symptomatic irrelevant to whether we identify antibodies yeah. or not. Now, I would be very interested to sort of come back to how we define autoimmune epilepsy, and I have to admit that I had to go back and read up what ILAE classifications were, so I'm not a, a sort of epileptologist. And for me, I wondered whether the, the, the definition, and it's 
it may be sort of more operational at the moment, but let's take an MDR encephalitis, for example. You know, is that an autoimmune epilepsy, or is that an autoimmune movement disorder, or is that an autoimmune psychiatric disorder? It's probably all three, and I think that's where de definitions like this have to evolve, whereby the parallels to that would be in a genetic sort of syndrome, whereby once the genetic condition is, or the mutation is defined, does that become a, a diagnostic category itself, or does it remain syndromic stroke disease diagnosis like an autoimmune epilepsy? I suppose the other component of the diagnosis of autoimmune epilepsy would be that where one would define the pathology being provoking and hence not by definition, you know, an epilepsy as yet, whereas the other, if it persists for a lot longer and driving the, 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 the process, do we call it an epilepsy? Uh, I, I'm not sure I know the answer. I get a very interesting point, and I'm not sure that I know the answer either. My understanding is, I think you're trying to refer to, for example, a child comes in with seizures, we know he has viral encephalitis, we call this like acute symptomatic and we hope by the time his encephalitis resolves, then he would no more have epilepsy. Or if he does have epilepsy, it might be related to the uh, brain insult that he had as a result of this mm. encephalitic approach. When it comes to autoimmune mechanism, I think things are less clear. So do you call a, a patient with NMDR receptor having just acute symptomatic seizures? But we know that he has, on the other hand, giving the ILA definition, he has in a condition that causes recurrence maybe of seizures or endurance potential for having further seizures. So, you know, once he has more seizures, maybe you could potentially call him epilepsy. Now, mm -hmm. I, I also like another example which might be more clear because not all patients with NMDR receptor have seizures is, for example, limbic encephalitis. So limbic encephalitis present with temporal lobe seizures. And uh, there has been reports, such as by uh, Professor Bien in Neurology 2007, saying can be behind temporal lobe epilepsy that develop later in life. So I guess at the time of having acute limbic encephalitis, you have uh, usually mesotemporal high signal in the um, acute phase. Later on, this might proceed to sclerosis and atrophy in the chronic phase. So it is the initial immune um, disturbance that causes the limbic encephalitis, and that's what you want to treat. And you could call that acute symptomatic seizures, but I guess if it is an ongoing process, you could even call it autoimmune epilepsy. But then when you're faced by this person later in life having a temporal lobe epilepsy, does he still have um, antibodies? Does he still have autoimmune mechanism, uh, you know, an immune treatment indicated at this point? Or does he actually have, like, a remote symptomatic cause for his seizures at that point? I guess, again, you might need to evaluate the presence of antibodies, the presence of inflammation. Does he have actually persistent signal abnormality on MRI rather than sclerosis or atrophy? And if that's the case, then, and his seizures are resistant to treatment, he might be a candidate for immune therapy as well. True. I think that's the border zone, isn't it, between what is acute on chronic and chronic and whether the process persists or, or not. This discussion has given me really great ideas about what 
we can go and do next in terms of studies and clearly natural history studies of well-characterized prospective cohort is the way to go and because of the relative rarity of these conditions you know they're not ultra rare you know encephalitis in, in terms of uh, autoimmune encephalitis and any all encephalitis we would perhaps see about 10 per million children in the UK and perhaps in, in that should be fairly similar worldwide and similarly with the epilepsies that would be quite a high you know incidence but provided we collect them and look very carefully at those patients treated acutely because a lot of the difficulties with the literature to date is a lot of the diagnosis being retrospectively made and hence making treatment data more difficult to interpret and also to, to address if any of early treatment does prevent epilepsy, i.e. a proper anti-epileptogenic immune treatment. So, for example, early treatment or early you know, escalation uh, preventing a, a seizure sequelae. I think we know from our study in the UK that uh, you know, at least 30% of children presenting with autoimmune encephalitis continue to have uh, seizure as a feature later on. Um, in life, and finally, whether any of the acute, you know, and, and advanced imaging can help us delineate, you know, some of those outcomes. We are far from really uh, reaching a definite terminology or guidelines, and that really a lot of work is needed, especially in children who might be different in the way they really uh, behave with these autoimmune mechanisms. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Uh, many thanks indeed to Dr. Jihan Suleiman and Dr. Ming Lim for a very interesting discussion on an evolving field and for highlighting all the unknowns as well as the beginnings to be known. Just to remind our listeners, the article is The Recognition and Treatment of Autoimmune Epilepsy in Children by Jihan Suleiman and Russell Dale. It's in the May 2015 issue.